This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. On uh, behalf of the faculty and staff of the Graduate School of Management, uh, welcome to our students, our alumni, our business partners, campus colleagues. Thank you all for joining us tonight uh, for the first UC Davis Graduate School of Management's Dean's Distinguished Speaker Series event for this 2017-18 academic year. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, I would like to acknowledge some special guests uh, who are in attendance. Uh, Dean Helene Dillard of College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences. (laughs) Justin Siegel, Assistant Professor and Faculty Director of the Innovation Institute for Food and Health. Justin, you're there. Ned Spang, Assistant Professor, Food Science and Technology and Associate Director of the Energy Efficiency Center. And Julie Morris, Academic Coordinator, Food and Agriculture Industry Immersion at Graduate School of Management. <laughs> Last spring, the GSM launched a pilot industry immersion course in food and agriculture. The main objective of this program is to continue to build on the unparalleled reputation of UC Davis in food and agriculture by training students to examine problems comprehensively in interdisciplinary teams. Our MBA students were joined by graduate students from food science and technology, viticulture and enology, and integrated genetics, and together they were exposed to significant managerial problems being faced in the industry through real case studies. Executives from Mars, H.M. Klaus, Coca-Cola, McKinsey Company stepped forward to participate, as well as tonight's distinguished speaker. I'm pleased to announce that the GSM will build on the success of last year's pilot program and offer four industry immersions in winter 2018 for our MBA students. In addition to food and agriculture, we will be offering immersions in biotechnology, sustainable energy, and the technology CFO immersion. Under the direction of Julie Morris, we have already confirmed the participation of executives from an impressive lineup of companies in this year's food and agriculture immersion, and we are looking forward to building on the reputation of UC Davis as a leader in this area. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the man formerly known as Chairman of the Bunny, and now CEO and co-founder of Once Upon a Farm, John Foraker. With more than 20 years of experience, John is a leading authority in the organic and natural foods industry. He became chairman of Annie's Homegrown in 1998, and the company doubled in size within the first few years of his leadership. By 2010, Annie's had risen to the number one company in 10 natural and organic food categories with $100 million in revenues. As chairman of the board and CEO for Annie's, He took the company public in 2012 under the symbol BNNY, that's why the word bunny has come, before the buyout by General Mills in 2014. He also advised General Mills' small business incubator 301 Inc. and was recognized as the EY Entrepreneur of the Year 2015 in Northern California. Through it all, John has maintained a sharp focus on sustainability and social responsibility, and his most recent endeavor is no different. John joins A-list celebrity Jennifer Garner at Organic Baby Food Company, Once Upon a Farm, where he is CEO and co-founder. 
John holds a BS in Agricultural Economics from UC Davis and an MBA from UC Berkeley. Please join me in welcoming John Foraker. Thank you. Thank you. And so the title Chairman of the Bunny was self-appointed, and no one at General Mills had the guts to tell me I couldn't have it, so I just took it. Which is <laughs> better ask for forgiveness and permission. It's a, it's a common theme in my career, I think. Um, so uh, I'm going to, first of all, uh, thank you for having me, Dean. Thank you for having me. Um, it's fun to be here. I speak a lot at a lot of different stuff. I tend to be kind of an informal speaker, so I like to get through the presentation part and actually just answer q and A. I I find that most of the time people like that better anyway. Um, so I'm going to cover like a couple things. First of all, a little bit on the organic market, my experience with it, growing Annie's. I'll, I'll talk about some of the things we did really well, some of the mistakes we made, and then I'll talk about this wild, crazy startup that I'm doing right now um, with Jen and, um, and all the excitement that's going to come with that and all the uncertainty that comes with being in a startup again, <laughs> which I never thought I'd do. But anyway, I'm crazy, I guess. Um, but I want to answer your questions and hopefully give you some deep insights into what we're trying to do here. Um, not only what the, our brands have done and are doing, but also this whole space. It's just a crazy, awesome space that's developing really fast. So. My presentation is called Appetite for Organic Foods Brings Big Opportunities. Um, because everyone needs statistics, I'm going to talk about a couple of things. I'm going to first talk about the structure of the industry, like where is the industry at right now? So one page with a few bullet points, I'll just kind of hit them. So organic is almost a $50 billion industry right now, which I still laugh at when I see because I was out selling organic food before there was a USDA organic seal, which was put in place uh, by the USDA in 2002. We had organic products. The first ones at Annie's were introduced right about the time I got there, 1998, 1999. And we were, I think the industry at that point, if anyone was measuring it, was maybe a billion, maybe two billion, three billion. And um, I would sit in front of buyers and they would say, organic and natural is a fad. This is a fad. And I'd be, no, it's not. It's not a fad. Here's all the reasons why. Then when it was 10 billion, I'd be like, I'd show them the Organic Trade Association chart saying it's 10 billion, it was 1 billion. That's a fad. And it's like, okay, no it's not. How about when it's 20 billion? And then I'll show you another chart that says it's going. So um, anyway, it's really become a mainstream business now. Like truly mainstream, it is obviously not a fad. Um, right now about 80% of US households buy organic sum. Now obviously that, that use is concentrated in a much smaller group. There's about 10 to 15% that are doing most of the buying. But every household, almost 80% of them, are in the category at least once a quarter, once every six months. And they're coming in in categories, in the emerging parts of the categories, fresh, perishable produce, you can imagine. Um, and awareness of the organic seals at all-time highs. There's a lot of confusion about national organics still, but, but the awareness is high. Organic is one of the few places in food that's growing. So dollar volume last year across, they call it XAOC, but like all measured channels in the United States, if you think of the scanner data, was up almost 10%. Um, units were up a little bit more. Um, and if you go back and look over a five-year period, a 10-year period, a 20-year period, it's a compound annual growth rate north of 10, and it has been forever. And I think it's going to continue. Um, the law of large numbers is probably going to start bringing the averages down just a bit, but the reality is there's a long runway to grow. And these last two points are the two. If you remember anything from tonight, these are probably the two most important things. So in about 2000, and I'll talk about the history of Annie's in a minute, but there was a point in the mid-2000s where 
I started looking at um, population data. And we, looked, we had a lot of research that we had done on the attitudes of millennials that we call millennials. Um, it's a big group, but this age group. And how their attitudes about food were so different from the parent, their parents, let alone my parents. And, and you could see, if you actually put this thing up there, that there was this huge tip-over that was going to happen. And a lot of people were going to be coming into household formation, buying their own food, making their own food decisions. And I remember we had this epiphany moment in the mid-00s, and I'll come back to it in just a second. And we're like, oh my God, if those people think that way about food, and they become the biggest food buying population, what's going to happen? And we're like, organic's going to explode. So we went out and we're selling retailers a story saying, you got to get out there behind brands like Annie's because we're going to be a big mainstream brand and I'll talk to you about what happened. Um, but, but what's crazy about it, as big as Annie's is, Annie's is 400 million now, which is it's not the biggest organic brand, but it's very close to it. Um, that's being driven largely by just 25% of that population that has tipped in has kids and is now buying. In the next 10 years, 80% of that cohort is going to be parents. So if you think there's been disruption of organic and conventional food, you have seen nothing yet. And you combine that with technology and all the stuff that's happening out there, um, retailer acquisitions and the combination, it's going to be insane in the next 10 years. And for, big, uh, for small companies and big companies alike, there's going to be tremendous risk and opportunity. So. That's the frame up, and now I'm gonna talk about the Annie story, and I'll come back to some of these themes as we go through it. So I got involved with Annie's in 1989. I started my first food company in 1994, actually. I was working in the wine industry. Um, there was this guy, um, you may know him, um, was the, uh, Dave, Mr. Davies from Shamsworth, where are you? You're in here somewhere, there you are. You remember Mike Moon from Behringer? Yeah, oh wait, was he really? Okay. So legendary guy in the wine business. I actually started a food company with him in 1994. I had been a banker. Um, and it was this crazy little company with a chef, Michael Chiarello, up at, at, in Napa. And so that was my first food business. And we grew that business up to about 10 or $12 million a year, like very scrappy startup. Um, but then we started flattening out. We were selling into specialty food retailers like uh, Williams-Sonoma, Neiman Marcus, all these fancy retailers that were selling great tasting gourmet food. But then there was this other market that I didn't know a lot about. It was the natural foods market. And it was like bulk granola bins and Birkenstocks and co-ops. And those two things, what was bizarre, again, was like those two things were very separate, but they were starting to crash together. There was about 30 whole food stores. And if you went into a whole food store, it was the best specialty food store in America. Like, um, and there were some chains like Fresh Fields up in the Northeast. And it was a convergence of health and great taste and high, you know, high-end quality was starting to happen. And so our business was starting to flatten out, but I saw this space opening up. And I came back one day, our oldest Jack, my wife Beth is right here. Hi, Beth. It's all because of you. Um, so one day I came in, um, in, in, I think this was about 1992, 1993, after Jack was born. And I came home from work and uh, was just starting this other company, and I opened the refrigerator, and there was like, organic strawberries were like up here on the right, and I think there was some organic milk, and it was like, that was there. And then there was the conventional stuff down here, and I said, what's that, why is that different? She goes, oh no, that's not for you. Like, you're, al you're already ruined, you don't get any of that stuff. <laughs> that's all for Jack, and I'm all, what is this about? Because I came from the conventional, I, I, I grew up in Northern California, 
spend most of my time summers growing up on a D6, D7 cat tractor ripping soil, like we farm it, rice farming, almond farming. So I started learning about organic, and so I said, wow, this is cool. We need to get in this business. So I looked around. I found this little tiny company in Wakefield, Massachusetts called Annie's, which I thought was a big company. It was actually tiny. It was really big in Boston, and it was really big in like Safeway in San Francisco, and it was nowhere else. <laughs> and so um, I, they had uh, grown the business over 10 years to about $6 million in sales, um, and they were just about to sell it to the most horrible company in the world that was going to ruin it and combine it with like some gross uh, popcorn business and just destroy this business. So I called up um, Annie and the guy who's running it. I go, I need to come out and see you. I got to buy it. We got to buy it. We're going to save you from the mistake you're about to make. So I got on a plane. My first ever red eye in San Francisco. I was a total rookie. I didn't know how to do it. So I basically didn't sleep the whole night. But I flew out there. I connected with Annie and we made a deal. And then I came back and said, I was on the way back going, like, how the hell am I going to find $3 million? What the hell did I just do? I got 30 days to do that. So anyway, we raised $3 million, got involved in the business, um, I'm, uh, and it was very tiny. Um, and it was the culture was shared verbally. It's, it's interesting. I'll talk about mission and all that stuff in a minute. They didn't really have one. They had all this cool stuff on the package. Does anybody remember that package from the 80s? Yeah. This, this scholarships thing um, was funny. When I first talked to them, I'm all scholarships. Like, what, what are you guys, what is your scholarship program? That's cool. And they're like, oh, we don't have a program. What we do is we have this address. And if you actually write us a letter and send us a self-addressed stamp envelope, we'll send you a brochure on how to get a college scholarship. Remember, this is before the internet, okay? <laughs> like, this is, we're talking old school. So, so anyway, um, I got involved in this company and I thought it was just this incredible brand. And, um, and so I'll tell you about why. So um, I thought this brand could change the food world in many ways because um, it stood for, in its first products, they had a product that was like Free Willy Keiko. Again, total flashback to the 80s, but there was this like, effort to save this whale. And um, they were really focused on positioning the brand about, around environmental causes. They had a whole line of products that was anti-war. It was um, political. Um, but it was also very emotional. And um, I, I saw people connecting with this brand on, a, on an emotional level, which was very different than like, hey, I love that mac and cheese. So to me, I was like, wow, this could be way bigger because if, the, if they're buying because of emotion and values, what, you could sell a whole bunch of different products. It's not just one category. So in the mid-00s, so the business went 10 years before I got involved and then another five or six and my head of marketing was this woman named Sarah Bird. She's the CEO of a company called Bhakti Chai, in, um, which is a chai tea company in uh, Boulder now. But for two or three years, she was like, John, we need a mission. We need a mission. And I'm all, well, we don't freaking need a mission. I go, I worked for Bank of America. We had the most incredible mission in the world. No one cared. No one read it. And they did the exact opposite of it every day. So I was like, I was like, <laughs> I was like totally cynical about like mission statements and core values and all that. But she finally convinced me. So we, we went through this uh, process. We developed this mission statement. And then one night, I went home and I wrote our core values. I don't have them up here, but you can see them on the Annie's website. I literally wrote them. They changed a couple uh, of words the next day. And that became our core values and mission. After I did that, and after we started talking about that, and it presented the, the guardrails for the business, our business just took off. So um, it was a pretty, pretty amazing uh, moment. And um, 
I'll come back to the new company I'm starting and the lesson I learned there, but we, we leveraged some basic trends here. Consumers were eating more healthier and I thought there was gonna be a lot more of them. Um, there was a growing market for organic products, pretty good entrepreneurial opportunity. And then we just combined these three things. In our growth strategy, when we were a $10 million company, we were probably, a, by the time we did the, the, the mission and values, we were probably a $30, $40 million company. By 2010, we were $100 million. By 2012, we were, uh, 2013, we were about $200 million. We're now about $400 million. So the business was totally enabled by that, uh, the mission and values, which was a huge lesson for me. But, but our st- business strategy was the same the whole time. I would sit down with venture capitalists, or when we went public, we did our roadshow. I'd sit down with institutional investors. And I'd say, they go, what's your strategy? I go, it's boring. It's the same thing we've been doing forever. It's basically take these great products, expand distribution, get them in a better part of the grocery store. When, when I started selling natural organic foods, the only place you, first of all, you couldn't find them in a grocery store. Once you could find them in a grocery store, retailers focused on natural food sections, which were usually the part of the store back by the mop closet, you know, and you wanted to not be on the bottom line there because the bottom of the road, because there was so much dust, it was just a gross part of the store. So we wanted to get the stuff into the main part of the store, the main aisle of the store. So that was my, our mission for over a decade, and it really started to happen with big retailers in about 2010. Um, and now, just now, Kroger has taken all of our items in the mainline aisle. I mean, it's a real trend that we are at the front end of. Um, Driving innovation, so we, we launched into a new category every year or year and a half. Um, and we did a lot of crazy fast stuff. Some of it worked, some of it didn't, but the first innovation we did was in 2003. Um, true story, um, we were a mac and cheese business from 1989 to 1999. I got involved in like 2001, 2002, I'm all, you know, we should do something new. I, we should do something new, what is it? And one day I was at home and we had uh, Pepperidge Farm goldfish there. And I'm like, well, they're goldfish. They have a goldfish. We got a bunny. His name's Bernie. Like, um, that was Annie's pet bunny, which is on the package. I'm like, why don't we do a cheddar cracker and it'll be organic and we'll have a bunny and that'll be cool. And um, so we took it. We actually, people thought that was, the people in the company thought that was a really cool idea. Every venture capitalist, all of our current investors thought it was the stupidest idea ever. Everyone told me not to do it. Everybody. Like, you can't expand a brand like that. Brands don't go like that. There's all these rules in CPG food. I was stupid. I didn't know any of that stuff. I wasn't restricted by what I didn't know. So I'm like, of course. I think it'll work. So we popped up uh, some products in front of a Whole Foods, and we, we saw some kids and moms interact in it, and we knew it was a great thing. We, had a, we, won a, we introduced in 2003, we won a, nas- uh, a, a big natural foods award for the at the big trade show, we did $500,000 in our first year on it, and you would have thought, like, we hit the lottery. <laughs> it was like, woo, 500 grand. Um, but it was huge, and so we built the brand as this innovative brand, and then we've been increasing household penetration. So when, you know, early on, we probably had 0.2 household penetration. Now the brand's at 10 and growing, uh, actually, and growing by leaps and bounds. Um, so... Actually, I take it back. It was at 10 um, in 2014. We just hit 20. So we just added, the brand added in the last year, um, or last three years, it's added more consumers than any brand that if you look at CPG retail, the only brand that's even come close, guess which brand? Which brand like completely turned the yogurt category upside down? You probably all buy it, Chobani. 
So Chobani like created this massive wave. So they were the only other brand in the last 10 years that's grown this fast. So anyway, that's the strategy we used. And we had these, we had this saying called eat responsibly and act responsibly. This gets to like make really good stuff and make it in the right way. Um, and then deliver that for, in a way moms trust. And then act responsibly is the, the corporate conscience and our social and environmental impact stuff. So this part was really easy. There were four pillars. We had these real and authentic roots. That's Annie. That's where their first daughter, um, Molly, and that's their little farm in Connecticut. Um, and that's Bernie, um, her brother. They wanted Annie to be on the package at the very beginning, but she's, think of the shyest person you know you've ever met. Think of somebody 10 times more shy than that. That's Annie, okay? She was not going to have her picture on anything. So they said, we want to put your picture on. She said, no, but I have this cute rabbit named Bernie. And so she asked her brother Bruce, and Bruce drew that picture, that exact picture. And we popped him on it. And so he became a real icon for the brand. Kid-friendly. We made great-tasting products. We were one of the first natural organic brands that actually tasted good. There used to be this thing where it was either taste, taste but not healthy, or you know, healthy, no taste. Um, we basically were the first one that got it right for kids and families. Um, simple natural organic ingredients. It starts with simple formulations, number one. So our lead ingredient mac and cheese is actually block cheddar cheese versus all the other stuff you can make it with. Um, real Durham wheat grown in the upper Midwest. Um, and, and we got on the organic bandwagon in 1998. The standards were put in place in 2002. The business now is about 95% made with an organic claim, and it's actually about 70% certified organic, which has doubled in the last two years. So we're a huge buyer of organic ingredients. And then socially responsible practices, I, I talked about the scholarship program, or lack of it. Um, so the first thing I did was I said, we're going to have a scholarship program, an actual one. So we started a scholarship program for environmental studies students, it was $25,000 in the first year. Now it's about a quarter of a million, maybe three or four $300,000 a year. It gets bigger every year as the business grows. Every year my marketers say like, hey, this is big enough now. Don't you think people don't care about it? No, if the business grows 25%, that, that pool grows 25%. So we've actually had over a 15-year period now an enormous number of people who are real leaders in the organic movement got a scholarship from Annie's, which I'm super proud of. Um, but we have like recycling programs and we've actually over time decided 15 years ago when we really started going at organic, we decided that the biggest social impact we could have would be by driving organic and driving the benefits of organic. And I'll talk about that in Q&A. Um, uh, sustainable farm economy, like all kinds of uh, positives. So anyway, we had this brand that, con that consumers really trusted. And if you ask, if you look at consumer research on the Annie's brand, we're one of very few brands that mom doesn't even read the ingredient statement anymore because she trusts that we'll use good stuff, which is an incredible achievement for a brand. So the other part is this act responsibly part. So we are a company that has a really distinct corporate culture. Like there are some very cool companies I admire a lot, like Patagonia and Cliff and 7th um, and Gen and all these other brands you may know. We, we are like right, right there with them. And our people are drawn to Annie's because they want to make a difference. They want to work for a company that's going to be a solution to big problems we have in the world, not make them worse. So we've, uh, we've been guided by this motivating principle ever since the company started, and it's been really powerful for us. And it's, it's, um, it really led us to develop a really deep sustainability program. So in about 2003, 
2004, I was looking at these things we were doing. And I said, you know, you, you, can, you can have positive intent and all that stuff, but there has to be there there. We have to measure it. We have to report on it. We have to be fully transparent about what we're good at, what we're bad at. And in the sustainability world, um, there's, there's a lot of science and research, and there's a lot of companies doing a great job. So one of the first things I did was I went to um, uh, Cliff Bar, and I, I borrowed one of their best employees. Um, I haven't hired a lot of people from Cliff because we have such a nice respect for each other, but I brought in Sean Sadowski from there, and she helped us build from the ground up this incredible sustainability program. So we measure our entire supply chain from farm to fork, um, our greenhouse gas emissions, we track everything, we report out on it every year, we report especially about the stuff that we suck at, which is a big part of sustainability. Consumers don't demand that you're perfect, they demand that you have positive intent and that you're trying to change the world and you're trying to be better. Um, so anyway, uh, that was a huge part in building uh, depth and trust in the brand. And we, we got incredible benefits from all these things together. We get, uh, still, Annie's gets hundreds of letters like this a week. And this is typical. It's kid drawing a picture. It's mom taking a picture of this thing that her kid loves. It's a kid in a cancer ward who's bringing, who brings a box of mac and cheese to hold on to during their chemo treatments because that's her love object, which makes me practically cry every time I say that. But um, we, we have this incredible love, and that is the benefit you get if you run a purpose-driven company is relationships with consumers that are that deep and emotional. Um, and you have other benefits, too. You have wildly empowered employees. So our, our business is, um, the other thing I borrowed from Cliff is their headquarters. <laughs> so they moved about eight years ago to a big building in Emeryville, and I know Gary, and I said, Gary, I'm coming over. I'm, I want your building. He goes, okay, you can have it. You can't have the climbing wall, but you can have everything else. And so... We took that building, it's been in Berkeley, um, and uh, we just have had incredible employees and very high employee engagement. We were bought by General Mills in 2014, and they saw our employee engagement scores after they did one, and they couldn't believe that you could have scores that high. It was pretty amazing, actually. Um, so anyway, big, huge benefit. And then we took the company public in 2012, and I always, I took this picture walking, this is the night before we started trading, and um, I, I like, practically broke down but to me this was the moment that I'm, I'm like organic is truly a mainstream thing we went out on this road show we were oversubscribed almost 40 to 1 every single big um, bluest of the blue chip uh, investment funds that buy IPOs was was wanted to be in on this deal and to me that showed that there's real power and a real market here and the reason that's important is because you have to have a market to pull the demand to drive the, the, the land conversion and all the things we'll talk about in a minute. So anyway, um, super exciting. And um, we've been owned by General Mills now for three years. I ran that business as a division of General Mills. We were very careful about what we brought in from General Mills and we kept a lot of stupid stuff away. Um, but it's been a real success story. The business doubled. We've, we've more than doubled the amount of the business that's certified organic. Um, We've increased our household penetration to 20%. Our brand love is higher than it's ever been, despite the fact that the day the deal got announced, there was about 25,000 discrete individual Facebook comments on our Facebook page, and 99% of them were really nasty. <laughs> but the cool thing was, I read almost every single one of them, and I responded to thousands of them. The, the, the anger was not coming from a, mostly not coming from a place of hating General Mills it was coming from a place of worrying about losing some of you love. And it was like, so we just said, look, just 
watch what we do, hold us accountable, and if you see, like what you see, stay with us. And we've done it, and they have. So to me, it's a great example of how acquisitions can be done in such a way that the core values are protected and, and preserved, and we can continue to drive impact like this. So um, at, uh, right before this, I was talking to some students about regenerative agriculture. How many of you have heard of the, the, con the, the two words together? Obviously, the sustainability guys have. Um, so this is something you're going to hear a hundred times more about. It's actually a really common sense thing, but it's the basic idea that by farming better, you can drive better soil health. Um, and by farming better and driving better soil health, you can actually sequester carbon in the ground, pull it out of the atmosphere, and it can actually be a very significant mitigant or, or, or uh, you know, antidote to global climate warming, and not just here in the US, but everywhere. And the other thing that's really interesting about it is it's, it's the fundamentals of organic farming, crop rotations, you know, soil management, low-till, all those things, but you can apply them to conventional farming systems in ways that give you the ability to impact not a million acres, but hundreds of millions of acres. So the potential is, is massive. When we got to General Mills, um, we were working on this, and they were so excited about it, and they were working on it too. We combined those efforts. Right away, they said, we're going to convert 250,000 acres to organic in the next three years, and we've done that almost already. Um, another thing we're going to do is we're bringing these big pools of capital together that want to invest in farmland with capabilities to farm it with a big economic engine, a brand like Annie's and other brands owned by General Mills to pull the demand, make long-term contracts. Um, they're, they're going to announce, um, I'll break news here, hopefully it won't get published, but they're going to, they're going to announce a, the, the formation of the largest contiguous organic farm in the United States because of what Annie's has been doing and what General Mills has been doing. And it's going to be a full conversion. It's like the world's most just destroyed ground from years of conventional farming, monocropping, all the bad practices. And it's going to be farmed, and we're going to measure the soil. We're going to measure carbon. We're going to do all kinds of research there that's going to show that this is a big deal, and we're going to leverage it. And there's a lot more behind that. And I'm happy to say also that it's not just General Mills doing this. Kellogg's working on it. Campbell's is working on it, all these big companies. That's how you drive real change, is you get the big food companies to drive the scale behind it. So no, I'm very excited about that and the impact that Annie's has had. So anyway, I decided uh, Annie's was in such a good place that I needed to do something crazy. So um, I'm doing a whole new startup. This thing is like the most famous lemonade stand ever. <laughs> we, the week that we announced it, uh, about three weeks ago, we, got, we, didn't, we tried not to get media other than the Wall Street Journal wrote on it. But we got 400 million unique um, impressions in like three days. And, and we didn't even, we stayed away from all consumer. And, and then I turned around to my people, my team, it was a very small team, and I said, you guys, we're a lemonade stand. <laughs> we're so small. Annie's used to do our annual revenue in like a half an hour on a Thursday afternoon, okay? <laughs> we need to build a real business here. But it's a great opportunity. And so here's what we're going to try to do. Um, obviously, I learned from my first time, having a great mission and strong set of core values day one is really important. So I did that. We did that together. And um, I'm really excited about it. Here's what it is. It's going to be about children. It's going to be about reinventing kid food to health, um, leveraging technology and fresh and capabilities and knowledge we have about food that we didn't have 30 years ago when Annie's was started. So a really exciting opportunity. Where we're starting is in baby food. What we're doing is we're um, 
How many of you uh, are familiar with Suja, uh, fresh pressed juices, HPP technology? HPP is high pressure pascalization, but most people think it's pasteurization. It's basically like taking um, food, making it just like you'd make it at home, and then treating it with pressure, basically five times the pressure per square inch that you find at the deepest part of the ocean, and that kills the pathogens and gives you shelf life, but it doesn't alter the food, so there's no heat, etc. So we have this line of baby food, and we're going to go try to completely disrupt the baby food business. We also are aging the brand up with uh, cold-pressed applesauce. So pouched applesauce has turned into a really big thing. We're doing a version of it that tastes 100 times better and is much better for you. We're using the real peel, real Fuji apples. It's incredible stuff. So that's the product line today, but we're going to take the brand and introduce it, just like we did with Annie's, um, into a number of categories all the way up to kids age 12. So... We have a big challenge ahead of us, though, because disrupting a category is really hard. Um, and I'll talk about the numbers on the category in a minute. But the sell is really easy. All you need to do is like look at the ingredient statement on the left. And if you're a mom wanting to buy a mango baby food for your kid, which one are you going to want? One that says 100% organic mango, and then you actually look at it on a spoon, and it looks like a fresh mango. Or do you want to buy the one on the right, which is, is processed? You know, It's a good product but it's been processed conventionally. It's double-cooked, meaning the purees have been processed, cooked, and packed, and then reprocessed and cooked and packed, um, and it's got a shelf life up to two years. Most of the, when you think of baby food, this is an interesting thing. I remember when we had baby food, and with Jack, I'd eat it, and I'd go, that stuff's gross. Like, why would an adult want to eat baby food? You wouldn't. Most of it tastes like crap. And, you, and, and, and the reality is, why should baby, baby food be inferior to the food that we make for ourselves? Why, wouldn't, wouldn't you want your kids to be developing a palate for real food at a young age and not a bunch of added sugar and all that stuff? So anyway, it's an incredible sell opportunity and story. When you present it that way, people really get it. But it's really hard to change the way retailers operate, and I'll talk about that in a second. So what's our brand position here? Unique, great-tasting products. We won't always do HPP, but we're going to leverage technology, and wherever we can, we're going to use the best technology. We won't do anything that doesn't significantly elevate the nutrition in the category we're going at. Um, someday, if we could do that in shelf-stable foods, we might do it, but right now, we, we don't have the technology to do that. We're looking at some things. But so it's going to be mostly refrigerated. All the products are optimized um, for, for each stage for the kid. We use healthy fats, we're putting chia in product, we're doing all kinds of cool things that moms appreciate to get them um, healthy fats. We've got um, uh, really great uh, technology and food safety capabilities behind us. We're going to obviously double and triple down on those. We have to, be the, we have to lead the industry in safety, and I think, we're the, I think we're at the lead in the industry, but we need to actually push the industry forward, and we'll be doing that. Um, and then our purpose focus is really threefold. One is so this gets to what is our social impact going to be and what are the programs going to look like? And I can't tell you exactly what they are right now because we're developing them and we'll be announcing them in a few months. But I can tell you generally where they'll be. They'll obviously be in organic and elevating organic and the idea of regenerative agriculture and direct farmer uh, sourcing and transparency to source and all these things will be a big part of it. We're going to be focused on educating kids about healthy eating, which is a great thing, but we're going to also really focus that on the most needy populations and then driving better access to food for all kids. And this gets to how do we play a role in tackling food deserts? How do we play a role in creating an economic engine that can drive impact? 
urban gardens, um, self-empowerment, education, doing all these things that Annie's did, but, but even taking them further and into um, a more aggressive posture. So anyway, when, um, when I first sat down with Jen, I call her Jen, but Jennifer, um, uh, I was a half hour late for an hour meeting because she was in LA and ended up going about three hours. And I came back and I talked to Beth about it. And I was like, this was a mind blowing meeting because I didn't go into this meeting thinking I was going to start a business with this person. I just, I mean, she was in 13 going on 30, which my kids loved and who didn't like alias, right? So I was like, <laughs> I was interested in saying hello to her, right? <laughs> But she's an incredibly deep person. She spent the last decade um, being basically the primary workhorse for Save the Children in the U.S., which is it's largely an international organization, but they have a big um, business in the U.S. She grew up in West Virginia um, and you know, really authentically cares about these things. So we decided, high-fived at the end of that meeting and said, like, I'm in if you're in. You're in. Okay, let's do this, but we're only going to do it if we can drive really big impact. And so, so she's the real deal. So... Um, She's also, you know, if you watch the movies and you hear her interviewed, you're like, wow, she seems like a nice person. She is. She's exactly like she seems. Super sincere, very humble. Um, and because of that, because of these uh, attributes, she's, she has, um, there's different measures that marketers look at for trustworthiness and like uh, different, different scores. Her scores are just off the charts. She's the perfect uh, partner, co-founder for this business. So um, she also has, uh, she also, uh, her parents grew up on this, or her mom grew, and dad grew up on this farm in Oklahoma. Um, it's a 70-acre farm now. There's a lot of land of, available around it. Uh, we're going to convert that to an organic farm, and we're going to be farming it in April, May. And we're going to be doing some really cool stuff there, experimenting. It'll be small at the beginning, but we're going to try to um, really incorporate some really cool farming practices there that we can talk about and that she can also feel really good about. Um, and hopefully we can drive some impact in that community too and really become a big farmer in that area. Um, but, but we need Jennifer and that power because it's really hard to break through. So um, let me talk about the size of the market for one second. Um, let me make sure I'm not too late. Okay, I'm doing okay. I'll be almost done. So on the left-hand side of that, is, there's two bar charts. One is the percentage of baby food that's organic. It's about 23, 24% now. Places like Target, it's over 60%. Um, and it's growing a compound rate of 10, 10 plus percent a year. Pouch, the pouch uh, part of the baby food uh, market was introduced in the mid-00s, and that's now about 25%. In fact, the leading organic brands launched in a pouch. That's how the whole market really got started. The market right now is about 1.7 billion. We think that the, the fr a fresh part of that market can be almost 500 billion. Um, or, or a little over 500 billion, and we think it's gonna come from three places. One is we'll gain some share, but the biggest thing we're gonna do is we're gonna drive a higher average, uh, use, average price AUP. So we're gonna bring some dollars into the category, and then the other biggest thing we're gonna do, just like Annie's and just like any good organic brand, we're, we're, because we're in the category, consumers will shop the category when they otherwise wouldn't. So we think we're gonna bring in a lot of people who are actually right now wanting to make their own food or are, and we'll bring them back in. But the hardest thing is getting retailers to change their behavior. If you go into a grocery store, there's a big baby food aisle, um, and it's not refrigerated, and there's no refrigerators in it. So when this little company started, and I was one of its first big investors, they would go in and they'd talk to the baby food buyer, and the baby food buyer would go, oh my God, I want this, okay. 
wait, I have a thousand stores. I don't have any refrigerators. Okay, I'll do a two-store test with two refrigerators, right? Really hard to scale. So our approach is very different than that. And I needed, like, the, the howitzer, like, like, you know, the positive version of a nuclear weapon in Jennifer and the ability to, like, drive the awareness to go to a retailer and go, um, hey, you need to put us right in the dairy set. Yeah, I know there's a lot of competitive stuff there. The turns are really high. The barriers to entry are high. You put us right there because we're going to create an entire new category. And we're not going to create just a baby food category. We're going to create a healthy kid category that doesn't exist today. Help us vision that. We'll, we'll populate it with a lot of cool products. But there will be other brands that will come into that space too. And wouldn't that be a great thing uh, for kids and families if we could do that? So that's the business strategy and plan and how we're going to go about it. Um, and then we, uh, we announced the formation of the company just uh, like really weeks ago. We're developing our marketing campaign. It's going to mostly be social, digital, and PR, as you can imagine. That's how we grew Annie's, and we're going to do that here, too. We have, you know, Jen can pretty much get any media interview she wants, so when she's ready to do that and when we're ready to have her talk to consumers, um, we'll, we'll turn that on um, early next year. But between now and then, we have to add thousands of stores. And so what we've been doing, I've been on an airplane with her and my team, and we're we're pitching to retailers this vision that for this new category that doesn't exist today. And so that's, uh, that's what we're trying to do, and I hope to come back and report to you guys at some future point about how it's actually going. Uh, but so far, so good. I'm three weeks in, and everything's pretty much gone according to plan so far, so, which is crazy in a startup. So anyway, that's my presentation. I, I can take some questions if you want. So OK, thank you. Does anybody have a question? Yes, sir. John, how did you select Jennifer? Um, I didn't, uh, I, I don't even think selecting Jennifer is the right way to think of it because she kind of selected the brand, actually. Um, I was an investor, I was the first, really the first outside investor that Ari and Cassandra, our two other co-founders, who started the business about 18 months before I joined as a full-time employee. Um, I invested before they had a first product in the market in these little Jimbo stores in LA or in uh, San Diego. Um, but Ari called me one day and he said, hey, Jennifer Garner's manager has called us. They've been looking to do something in food for six years. Um, and they, they, we met her and she loves us. She thinks we're small. But then she saw you and she loves Annie's. And she's like, I want to talk to that guy. And like, why is he involved, right? So she kind of picked the brand. And then um, I met her, and we started talking about stuff, and it was all about values and changing the world. It was crazy. And I came back, and I talked to Beth, and I'm all, oh, my God, something really weird just happened. I actually just agreed to start a new company <laughs> um, and try to change the world. I, we kind of tried to do that with the Innies, and it wasn't perfect. It was successful, but not perfect. And I'm like, okay, we're going to try to do that again. All right. Um, so that's how it happened. It was really just that. So, Yeah. Five to ten years, yeah. the, supply, the supply of organic product is starting to become an issue. For example, yeah. Bragg's apple cider vinegar. Yeah. There's not enough apple, organic apples. Totally. And also with the USDA requirements on organic lands, you can't flip a switch to turn on overnight. How do you think the industry is going to overcome that hurdle? Um, it's been overcoming it. Um, it's been a challenge. Ten years ago, it was not that hard because there was enough of a basic base of supply out there. Um, if you, if you were small and you wanted to go buy organic flour and buy some organic baking soda or whatever and do, make something, you could. But then um, around that time, these shortages started popping up. 
So in fact, there was this one ingredient, I can't remember exactly which one it was, that all of a sudden the market went short. This is uh, about that time. The market went short and everybody's like, what the hell has happened? Nobody can get this ingredient. And then we found out that Kraft was buying the entire market and sticking it into a warehouse to get ready for a big national launch. So that was a wake-up call for the whole industry. Um, and so you know, people have responded in different ways. The big companies like Annie's and the brands owned by big companies have invested millions of dollars of resources in the kinds of stuff that I was talking about before, like creating supply. So going to farmer groups and farmers and actually presenting them with an economic argument and a, a stable buying relationship that would allow them to take the risk to convert and then actually even investing in the, helping them convert in the cost paying them a transition price, for example, Kellogg's is doing this right now. They're paying, they're paying a higher price for somebody who's growing wheat that's converting in than not quite an organic price, but higher than they'd get in the conventional market with stability, so it takes some of the risk out. So we have to work on the supply side, and you know, the USDA organic program gets some paltry number from the, it's like, it's less than $20 million. It's like peanuts. And the rest of agriculture, the, the parts that aren't doing as well, but are, that are a, a trillion times bigger, are getting all the money. So we need public policy. We need That's a great idea, but it probably won't happen. It needs to be driven by um, companies. And so for a small company like us, we have to really work on our own supply the same way. We're going to be smaller scale, but we have to know who our growers are. We have to help growers convert. We have to do all the same stuff. So it's, it's gotten hard. I think if organic was, I said this earlier to a few students, right now organic is about 5% of U.S. food. If you talk to Walmart shoppers and describe to them what organic stands for, what it means, um, all, all Walmart shoppers, like 99% of them want it. Then you say, oh, by the way, you have to pay a premium for it. So the demand is basically endless if you can get the supply and you can start bringing the premiums down. So I think in the next 10 years, organic will be 10% of U.S. food, which is a pretty bold call. Most people don't believe that, but I do. If you look at this population shift, um, I actually think in my lifetime, it'll be close to 20. And in some categories, it's way past that already. Like I mentioned in baby food, it's getting there. And so anyway, I think it's just, we're just starting, but that is probably, that is probably the single biggest challenge the industry faces. And every, every manufacturer is working on that big time in their own way, but using a lot of the same kinds of things that we're talking about. Yes? Are there any complexities or risks having like a big celebrity as such an integral part of your marketing? Yeah, there are. Um, everything you do is subject to like hyper scrutiny. You know, when, when um, I've done a bunch of planning with her and we got to go do it behind a closed gate because there's an army of people outside wanting to take pictures and it's, it's uh, so you have to do everything with an, an absolute eye to like perfect authenticity and, um, and you have to know that you're going to be criticized for something maybe that you shouldn't be criticized for just because you're in the spotlight. Um, but the flip side, so that's the negative issues or risks around it, but the positive side of it is if we really believe in what we're doing and we want to get 10 billion earned media impressions, we can do it and we're going to do it. Um, and so it's going to be fun to see. But 
I haven't done, I've never had this kind of a relationship on a brand before. So I'm learning from people who have done a great job of it. And Jessica Alba at Honest Company and others have grown big businesses. Not perfectly, they and we will make mistakes, but but it's pretty incredible the size of the business and the quality of the brand that they've created there in about a five-year period. We're hoping we could be even remotely as successful as that. Successful as that. Yes. So if so many millennials are going to be shifting into parenthood, mm-hmm. and the way that we market to millennials has been very different compared to how we market to moms traditionally, yeah. how are you going to get their attention? How are you going to capture that market share? Yeah. Um, I don't. The, uh, um, we have to do it very differently. I, not that differently than Annie's has done it, though. I mean, we've. I don't really think we've marketed to consumers as much as we've participated in a conversation with them and developed a relationship with them by talking about things that are interesting to them, sharing original content that we've created, driving mission and impact that they care about. So we'll be doing the same thing. We'll have the added advantage here that we didn't have there, which was. If I wanted to get 10 billion media impressions there, it was a lot harder. I mean, people want to write about Annie's, and we get a lot. Of, we got a lot of great stories and a lot of national coverage, but it's different. This brand with Jennifer's association is going to allow us to get an elevation um, with consumers that would be impossible without that. So, but we're not going to change any of that approach. Um, I don't. I'd be really surprised if you saw national media on this brand for at least 10 years. I mean, we're doing it now at Annie's after 30. (laughs) And it's working, actually, because it's helping us get to another 10 to 20 million households that we weren't able to get at with that message by using social media. We're we're using social media, but supporting it. Yeah, Kevin? Um, You mentioned the very high employee engagement scores at Annie's. I'm guessing you're trying to replicate that. Yep. Once Upon a Farm, yep. what are some of the things that you learned about how to do that really well that you're going to apply this time? Yeah, the, the most, most important thing is just in, an engaging culture. It's not about, I've written a lot about this on my link. Uh, if you ever want to, if you, if, if you like a little of what you heard tonight, I, writ, I write a lot on LinkedIn and try to share it with other entrepreneurs. Um, culture is not about ping pong tables and free pizza and scooter races in the hallway. That's just a bunch of crap. Culture is about um, shared values, treating people like humans, respecting their opinions, um, being an engaged leader and having people who are engaged, and also having the business champion things that they care about. Um, this business is going to be fun because we're going to be able to do some things. We'll probably be a little more political than Annie's was, um, and we'll be able to take positive stands on things that we really care about. Um, you know, like paid maternity leave is something that, like, we're one of two countries in the world that has zero. It's, it's absurd. Like, corporate policy should, and government policy should be, there's at least 12 to 18 weeks of paid maternity leave, so we're going to do that. And, yeah, we're like this tiny little company with, like, 12 people going to 30 people or whatever. You can say, will that make a difference? Well, I think it will, because we have a megaphone like crazy to embarrass people into it. <laughs> Um, and so I think it's, it'll be that. We'll take positions on stuff that we really care about. And, you know, the other thing is, like, this space and these types of products and growth is fun. And it's not fun being in a business that's not growing. So we want to we do all that stuff together. Yes? Um, what are your 
thoughts uh, on kind of institutional uh, penetration uh, with organics? Mm -hmm. um, has there been efforts with Annie's to partner with like schools or yeah. hospitals or things yeah. like that? What are your thoughts in terms of? Yeah, there, there have been. We've spent a lot of time on it. We actually now sell um, organic snacks into public schools and they can afford it. Um, which is really hard with the, the number that the government gives the schools to um, is nothing, basically. Um, but, but we're just getting started with that at Annie's, and we have uh, you know, s several thousand people working on it as part of their school and food service division. I'd say that's an opportunity for the future. There are some brands like Back to the Roots that I'm an investor in and on the board in Oakland that just got... Back to the root cereal in the New York City school districts and basically throughout Kashi, and the kids actually like the the, the this product better. Um, it's the business model is tough, and um, but I think you're going to see more and more of that. It'll just be slow. That'll be probably the last place that you see it happen because of the economic constraints. It'll take this scale, this curve, getting a, a lot further down the curve before some a lot of places can do that. And then I'll go back here. Go ahead. Oh, um, so I saw you said that part of the Once Upon a Farm is delivery to homes. Yeah. Uh, with online retail mm -hmm. and grocery shopping growing now, do you foresee that kind of side of your business growing faster than in-store? Um, I think, I don't know that it'll grow faster than in-store because we're going we're gonna to grow exponentially because we're so tiny now. Um, but it will be a big, important part of our business. Like, to create a real modern relationship with consumers now, you have to be omni-channel. So we have a subscription business. It's about half the small business right now. Um, we're working on the business model. We're working with some big retailers who now have big retail um, online owners that are really interested in this. <laughs> you might be able to figure out who they are. <laughs> um, but I think that's an incredibly important part of the business model because you have to own as many of the relationships direct with the consumer as you can. You have big data opportunities, you have the ability to develop special relationships with them. And it's not that you can't do that by selling through another channel, you can. It's just harder. And so both those things are gonna be important. But I bet it'll be 20% of our business over time, which is big, because we're not planning on being small, you know, so. Yes. Come you, you spoke about refrigeration, and I yeah. hadn't realized that this product was a refrigerator. It's refrigerated. Mm -hmm. So, can you talk a little bit about the complexities about? Yeah, it adds a, it adds a whole bunch. Of, shelf stable. Yeah, it adds a whole bunch of uh, headaches. You've got uh, food safety headaches. You have to formulate. You have to process. You have to be very careful. Um, you have distribution headaches. It's more expensive. You have a 120-day shelf life. Best case. So you have to be able to deal with uh, a, show, um, a supply chain that looks more like a yogurt supply chain versus bomb shelter food that you can put in a, in a you know. I mean, most shelf-stable food you can stick in a warehouse for six months and forget about it, and then you can turn around and sell it again. No issues. But when you're in the perishable area, it's just a lot harder. So it's not like that's a new thing. I mean, there's a big perishable business out there, and there's a lot of uh, best practices, but we have to apply them in this category, which has never been done before, which is one of the challenges. Let's go ahead. Uh, so I noticed for a lot of your anecdotes and for the visuals that all say that moms are choosing this and this is how moms drink. As, as, a, as a dad of a one-year-old, I'll say, first, I totally get it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We always, we always risk offending dads when we say that. But the, 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 <laughs> when I go to the store, like, normally I'm discovering like a brand new baby stuff. Yeah. 
and yeah. if, if there's marketing out there, clearly yeah. it's not reaching me. And I'm curious, yeah. uh, you know, as, as you're betting on this millennial uh, tipping point, yeah. uh, who have different attitudes about you know uh, food and job roles and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen any data that says you might need to shift the way that who you're who is making those decisions? Um, dads are a really important big target, and we do talk to them, and we did at Annie's too. But even at Annie's, I always did the same thing. I'd say moms, mainly because when you look at, dads are buying a lot, but at Annie's, they were buying about 20%. I mean, mom, moms were the square target, and we wanted to make sure the messaging that we were delivering was getting to dads too. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a dad too, so I'm not trying to like deface dads, but... Um, but it is, they're both important. But they get their information the same way. You know, I think, I haven't seen recent stats on Jen, but she's probably tilts more female in terms of people who follow her. And I mean, obviously. So we'll probably follow that. Yeah. Yes? Do you feel like you have any key person risk with partnering with Jennifer Berger in the sense of, do you feel like without her, would the company still be as successful? I mean, like, is it a she's kind of like the leader, yeah. the company's behind her, or the company's there, and she's yeah. helping push it. She's, um, she's the equal partner in the company, um, and so she's going to be really important. I'm really sensitive to not build it as like a Jennifer Garner brand. You don't want to do that, because um, for a lot of reasons, but she does give us the ability to get the awareness of it up in a really great way and to build real authenticity around it, which exists. It's true, so why not talk about it? Um, but I'm, I, it's never going to be a thing where you're going to see like Jennifer Garner's signature on a package. She wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want that. It's more a strong endorsement from a co-founder who's actually working in her kitchen and helping us develop products and talk about mission and values and all that stuff. I mean, she's, she's right there. I mean, in our office in Berkeley, she'll have an office there. She won't be there, obviously, as much as the three of us who will be there every day. But she'll be there, um, and we've met with her a lot and spent a lot of time with her over the last 60 days already. Um, we had a big innovation session just last Friday, all day long, developing the pipeline, and we had her and her team and our team and everybody working together as one. So it'll be fun. Is that it? Yes. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.